This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. Hop, hop, hooray. Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. When someone else is sharing a story with you, you have to understand that how they see the world is as true and real as how you see the world. You know, it's not like, wow, their view of the world is broken. No, their view of the world is different. So part of empathy is listen to what that story meant to them. So like, if you tell me a story, and I'm like, Alan, I don't know why you're so upset about it. It's not a big deal. That's not a big deal. People do that all the time. I'm not hearing what it meant to you. And that becomes an empathic, what we call in clinical work, an empathic miss or an empathic failure. That's Brene Brown. Her career as a social scientist has given her insights in how to avoid empathic failures. And her talent as a natural communicator has allowed her to bring those insights to millions. Her TED Talk has been viewed over 48 million times. Our conversation ranged from what's the best way to ask your mate if they've taken the trash out, to how she's identified and teaches the four skills she says are vital to being more empathic. This is so great to be talking with you today because we talk all the time on this show about compassion and connection, and that's your thing. I, I want to talk about all of those, but I also want to talk about funny <laughs> because you, you're funny. Am I funny? Oh, my God. Alan Alda called me funny. This is, this is I'm done. Like life made. No, life no, made. you know you're funny. You hear the laughs rolling in, and I can tell that you, you're going for them, but in the most natural way. It doesn't sound like you're trying to be funny, which is the essence of being funny, I think, that you don't sound like you're that's, I think trying that's true. to be. Yeah. And I heard you on your podcast, Unlocking Us, I listened to when you were interviewing Judd Apatow. Did you say Apatow or Apatow? They told me Tao because it rhymes with cow is what was in my notes. Oh, well, that that's, yeah, because it rhymes with cow. <laughs> so you were asking him about what the essence of funny is. I want to ask you because you got it. What do you think it is? And you must think about it because these all these funny sayings don't come out of you totally spontaneously. We studied laughter 
the first, probably the first six years when we were talking about shame, because one of the things that I witnessed that I didn't understand was laughter around really hard topics. And, but there seemed to be this divide when I was talking to therapists about it. They, they would say, there's two kinds of laughter. There's laughter as deflection of pain. And that normally is not very funny to a person who sees the pain. Like you can see someone making fun of themselves or are laughing at their own expense and it's painful to watch. Uh, yeah. But then they said there's like this knowing laughter where people share part of their internal world that they thought was exclusively them. And so I hope mine is, you know, the latter is knowing laughter. Like, shoot, we're just in this together and it's so hard. You, you reminded me of something about laughter that I think I've seen. I think when people are laughing, they're in a vulnerable state. Yes. They're open. And that explains to me a lot of people who won't laugh. Oh, me too. I, I think, just like I think shame is a universal emotion, I think laughter is a universal language, but it requires vulnerability. And let me tell you, when when I was interviewing, this, there seemed to be, I'm trying to think of a binary, a non-binary gender way to talk about this, but there seems to be a feminine norm, don't laugh too much, don't laugh too loud, don't laugh too long. For men, our masculine norms, it seems to be emotional stoicism is prized. And so I do think laughter, real laughter is vulnerable. Yeah. There's also that laughter that has nothing to do with funny when we were doing Scientific American Frontiers, I interviewed Robert Provine, who is an expert in laughing. He's done a lot of research on it, who said the majority of the times we laugh, according to his research, is not at something funny, but as a social cue that we mean no harm. And if you listen for it, it's astonishing how many times people will laugh. They'll say something like, could I have the butter? <laughs> it's not very funny. No. <laughs> or, or don't forget your hat. <laughs> oh, my God. It, it's I a, do that with my husband, I think. <laughs> <laughs> How does that work? I think I do. I think I say, hey, did you take the trash out? <laughs> 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 See, now that's making me laugh, and it's not social. Oh, man. And why did it make me laugh? Did you take the trash out? Because in a way, you're admitting something that's common to all of us. Yeah, it's kind of passive-aggressive, kind of. It's I either do one of two things. I either do the, I mean no harm, but make sure you take the damn trash out. <laughs> Which already is a funny way to put it. Or... I do the other passive-aggressive thing, like, hey, did we get the trash out this morning? Yeah, yeah. And he'll say, I don't know whether we did or not, but I did, yes. You know, and so... <laughs> Sounds like you have a little play going on. <laughs> it could be a sad play sometimes. So now tell me about empathy from your point of view. Seems to me almost everybody who talks about empathy has a different 
interpretation of what it means, a different definition. How do you how do you see it? Is it do you distinguish it from compassion? Yeah, I do. And I think that I think in terms of how I define empathy, I probably align with maybe 70% of affect or emotion researchers. I would say that I think empathy is feeling with someone. It's when someone shares an experience and you're able to connect to the emotions underpinning that experience, perhaps not the experience itself, but you're able to tap into yourself and recognize a similar experience and be with that person. Um, And so kind of in that compact definition of feeling with someone is it's not sympathy, which empathy is feeling with. Sympathy is feeling for. Inherent in sympathy is disconnection and kind of otherness. I'm sorry for you from over here (laughs) um, where that bad stuff doesn't happen. Um, And I think it's also different from compassion just because I've taught empathy for 20 years. And so my PhD is in social work and that's that's where all my degrees are from. And so I've taught empathy as a skill set. I've been teaching empathy too as part of teaching communication in the Center for Communicating Science that has my name on it, uh, has taught 15,000 scientists to communicate better, but mainly through a process of empathy. So it, it really interests me uh, how you teach empathy. We use experiential mm-hmm. exercises. Don't y'all also um, incorporate a little bit of improv in your work? Yeah, that that because the essence of improv is making a connection yes. with the other person and not shutting them down. Right, right, not not blocking them, which is where the yes and thing comes in all the time. You know, I accept what you say and add to it rather than say, yeah, but, and then bury you under my butt. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> You should use that. That should be trademarked, man. I didn't I didn't mean to say it. But it's great. It's like the truth has its way of coming out. I have to say that the work that you do with scientists, you know, I love you for many, many reasons and many, many characters and many, many stories that you brought into my life and my home. But that work that you do with scientists, it's my favorite thing that you do because I'm a storyteller who became a social scientist. So I I had a different track, you know, I had a different track in. I just come from the storytelling, fifth generation Texan, fine line between bullshitter and storyteller, but I come by some of those skills naturally. But I see all my colleagues who are these brilliant academics and scientists, but don't have the ability to communicate through story and through empathy, what they're learning. And the, and the world could be so much better if people heard about these great things that people are doing. Do you know what I mean? You said it. You said it. And you do it with your own work. A good story, it seems to me, is an act of empathy because you're tracking what's going on in the other person's head. Which is why when I speak, even when I do big talks like a TED Talk or something, I have a rule that the house lights can only be at 50%. Yeah, I do that too. I go with 25%. I'm I'm about half as much light on the audience as you have. I don't want them to get scared. (laughs) That's true. I mean, that's true. (laughs) But I want want, want to see them. I want to see them too because storytelling is empathy. And if you're a skilled storyteller, 
you're watching the faces, real storytelling, whether you're talking about something that happened with your partner or you're talking about a scientific finding, is an act of generosity. It's not for you. It's for the story catchers. You know, yeah. and so you have to see their faces to see what's landing, what's not landing, where do they look confused. Yeah. So I do. How many are asleep? Yeah. Oh my God. That's true and hard. I know, I know an actress who was praising a theater. She says, I love that theater. It sleeps 600. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and painful. How do you do it? How do you build up? A person's empathy. I teach these four, these kind of four skill sets, and we bring bring them down. So we we teach perspective taking, which is really hard mm-hmm. if you're white, straight, Christian, male, and the more majority culture you are, the harder it is because you didn't grow up learning how to take other people's perspective because you had the dominant perspective. And so, but for people of color, for women, for people, LGBTQ plus folks, they learned how, you know, they, they learned how to wear bifocals, see the world through the majority lens and their lens for survival. So perspective taking is a critical skill set to empathy. So we teach perspective taking. How do you do that? I love to use this drawing that I have that is somebody looking through a lens, And all of the glass in the lens is like race, ethnicity, age, um, spirituality. And then up on the wall, there's more lenses, insights, experiences, trauma. And so what I, how I teach people is I say, you see the world through a lens. In order to practice perspective taking, you have to understand that the world that you see is based on your experiences, who you are, how you were raised. And that when someone else is sharing a story with you, you have to understand that how they see the world is as true and real as how you see the world. There's not, you know, it's not like, wow, their view of the world is broken. No, their view of the world is different. So part of empathy is not shoving other people's stories in front of your lens. Listen to what that story meant to them. So like if you tell me a story, I'm like, Alan, I don't know why you're so upset about it. It's not a big deal. That's not a big deal. People do that all the time. I'm not hearing what it meant to you. Yeah. And that becomes an empathic, what we call in clinical work, an empathic miss or an empathic failure. So that covers perspective taking. Right. What comes after that? Non-judgment. Hardest. We tend to judge in areas where we're the most susceptible to shame. So... If I have body image issues, I will judge others more around that issue. If I'm comfortable with who I am and how I look, I don't really practice judgment a lot. So part of being empathetic is understanding where unexpectedly someone's story or experience could set off my own shame, which would kills empathy. The two cannot coexist. I've heard you and I've read you saying that, and I don't quite get why. Why does shame and empathy not, why don't they go together? It's really because of our responses to them. So shame is very me-centric. When I go into shame, it's very self-focused. 
The only thing I'm interested in other people when I'm in shame is what they think of me. Empathy is an uh, other-focused emotion. That's so, that's so much like the improvisational stance. Tell me more. Where, you, where you're working with the other person and your objective is to let them in and let them set the agenda, make them look good. Your focus is on them because you're reading them. What are they saying to me? How, how, am I re- how am I going to respond to what they're saying and doing? I have to see what they're saying and doing. I have to hear it. I have to feel it. I have to enter into them a little bit. It's generosity, and right? And if the focus is on me, yeah, right. And if the focus is on, I wonder if they can tell if I weigh, that I weigh two, 10 pounds too much or I wish I weren't wearing these clothes right now. You're not going to see the other person. And have you ever done, because because I think about this with your work all the time. I've, it's like, who's going to interview who? Because I have so many questions for you. Um, I do. <laughs> well, for me, it's for me it's a conversation. Good. So Great. So blast away. Okay. Here's the challenge that I make up that you have to face in your work with academics. My training and the training of the majority of people I know who ended up being scientists, social scientists, bench scientists, whatever they went into is not, it is not subtly taught to us. It is expressly taught to us that the more accessible your work is, the more ashamed you should feel. <laughs> so people actually teach Yeah. That. Oh no, it's taught for sure. <laughs> And it, I mean, I, I think I think it's implied. I've seen it implied, but that's amazing. No, because I'll get back a paper that said, you use this word or this sentence when you could have said the epistemological assumptions for the methodology equate to, you know, like where I used a sentence that said, I studied this because this part made more sense to me. Yeah. You know, so so I think when... You come out of training as a scientist. You're wearing academy-issued armor. And it seems to me the work you're doing with scientists is take the armor off, let yourself be seen, and share your work with people in a meaningful way that can change the world. And there are some real inherent blocks in the way that we're trained to doing that work. That's the reason I encourage scientists to tell the story of their work, including the mistakes and the roadblocks that they encounter, because it's fascinating to see somebody overcome an obstacle. That's part of what makes a really good story. And you have to admit the obstacle. You have to, to right? That's act two, right? The whole all of act two is, you know, the protagonist tries to solve a struggle without being vulnerable. That's all of Act Two, right? <laughs> and then at the end, they they disarmor. They're vulnerable. They solve their problem. And then we only get like ten more minutes of the movie, which just sucks because I want to see like the happy ending go on forever. When we come back, I tell Brene about a problem I've had with empathy, and Brene tells me what I can do about it. Right after this. Our program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation with a mission to advance science for the benefit of humanity. 
The Foundation's mission is implemented internationally through a constellation of Kavli Institutes that support scientists who conduct basic, curiosity-driven research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, and also by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in these fields that transform our understanding of the very big, astrophysics, the very small, nanoscience, and the very complex, neuroscience. And the mission of the Kavli Foundation is also implemented by programs that support public engagement with science, enhancing how society encounters, interacts with science, and uses science in their daily lives. I want to thank all of you who have signed up to support Clear and Vivid on Patreon. It really helps us to bring you conversations with some of the most interesting people out there. Along with our sponsors, you make Clear and Vivid possible. If you haven't become a patron yet, here's how it works. If you visit patreon.com slash clearandvivid, you can subscribe for as little as $2 a month to get advanced news about coming shows and get listed on a virtual wall of generous benefactors, and there's even a modest bit of swag. If you go for a higher level of support, there's a lot of fun stuff coming your way. Videos and audio clips of moments with our guests that were fascinating but didn't make it into the show. Bonus episodes of behind-the-scenes chat as my producer Graham Chet and I put the shows together. Plus, for our top subscribers, a monthly video conference with me. That's been a wonderful experience. I love meeting the thoughtful, engaged people who listen to our podcast. And I'll even record a personalized voicemail message for your mobile phone. If you'd like to know more, just go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. And remember, you don't have to become a patron to keep listening to the show. You can continue to listen for free. But you can get an awful lot of fun extras if you do become a subscriber. And most importantly, your patronage directly funds our work with the Aldous Center for Communicating Science. So join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's patreon.com slash clearandvivid. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. You can make money the hard way becoming a bullfighter. Or save money the easy way with Xfinity Mobile. It sure beats making money as a human cannonball. Now through March 21st, learn how existing Xfinity customers can get a free line of unlimited intro for a year when they buy one unlimited line. That's hundreds of dollars in savings on your wireless bill. Visit XfinityMobile.com today. Restrictions apply. Xfinity Mobile requires Xfinity Internet. Reduce speeds after 20 gigabytes of usage per line. Data thresholds may vary. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support so you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. 
This is Clear and Vivid. And now back to my conversation with Brene Brown and the four skills that she teaches as the keys to empathy. Number one is critical perspective or perspective taking. Two is non-judgment. Then three and four are connected. We have to recognize, this is the emotional literacy part of empathy. We have to recognize what the other person is feeling. That's three. And then communicate our understanding of that to that person, which is four. How do you go about communicating your understanding? That, that sounds like a trap door to me. Uh, you know, one of those one of those tiger traps. Totally. Where you think you're on solid ground and now you're 10 feet underground because you say, in other words, how you feel is this. Right. Well, what's with that, what's with that belligerent tone, the way you're telling me how I right. feel? What's interesting is communicating that. You know where it's done beautifully? AA meetings where people can't say a word to each other. But they communicate their understanding with their bodies, with their faces, with their eyes. Someone will be sharing a very hard story, you know, about the first time I cheated on my wife, I was drunk. And if you look around the meeting and you watch the people watching the person sharing the story, they're all, you know, you can't see this on the podcast, but they're all, they have their eyes closed or they have their their heads buried in their hands and they're shaking yes or they're they're looking at someone like like I could look at you right now so Al and I are in, are in Zoom and I could be like I could look at you with love and acceptance and not judgment because you know in AA rooms in in you know 12 step rooms there's no crosstalk so you can't speak back after someone shares a story but there's- yeah, I didn't know that. The idea that you rely in a situation like that on body language is so good. It's so important because the more you learn to do that, the more you learn to pick up those cues and return them, not through the well-chosen word, but through simply reacting. You can't make your body do things that are authentic and natural. No. It's got to come from deep inside. I, I think that's right. And I think using AA as an example— I think just the fact that I'm sitting in this room with you, no better than you, no mm. worse than you, the homeless mm. woman sitting next to the female engineer and the male CEO or the, you know, the LGBTQ person sharing their story, it, it doesn't matter who you are, what you believe, who you love, we're in this room together. And that means that we know that we're hurting and in struggle. And so I think what's hard about number three and four, which can, is teachable, is it requires emotional literacy. And I think that's part of what's happening in this country right now and maybe the world is that we have not made social-emotional learning part of the curriculum starting in kindergarten. So here are 25 affects or emotions that you need to be able to recognize in yourself or others. Here's what this feels like. Here's how it may show up for you. So social-emotional learning, we can teach. So when I'm teaching empathy, we'll look at 60 different emotions and we'll do hard work around them because we interviewed close to 10,000 people asking this question. Name all of the emotions that you can recognize in yourself and others. And the mean, the average, was three. Happy, sad, pissed. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. Here's how I know that's true, at least in one anecdotal case. When I was writing my book about communication, I was trying to figure out an exercise that I could do that would increase my own empathy. 
So I experimented with trying to read the faces of people I would bump into during the day, the cashier at the checkout or people I just saw walking down the street. What emotion could I read in there? And when I thought about it for a while, I realized I only had about three emotions that I had to choose from. (laughs) I wasn't literate, as you say. I had a struggle to think of emotions with shadings, with, you know, there's there's supposed to be a hundred or something words for snow in the Inuit language, which I'm not sure is even true. You've identified 60 ways to describe emotion. Most of us don't have that vocabulary. No, it's... Name, name, of, name a few, just so, so you can give an example. Well, the emotional granularity predicts our ability to move constructively through emotion. So the difference between shame, guilt, humiliation, and embarrassment. So these are four emotions of self-conscious affect, shame, guilt, humiliation, embarrassment, radically different, radically different mm. causes and outcomes, uh, envy, jealousy, admiration, really different. Despair, hopelessness, different. But I always tell people all the time, imagine if you go to the doctor because you have a pain in your shoulder that's so acute that when you feel it, you lose your breath, you almost pass out. I mean, it is an acute pain. And you get to the doctor's office and she says, tell me where it hurts. And all of a sudden your hands are tied behind your back and your mouth is duct taped shut. And you just say, mm, 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 mm. And she's like, no, I can't, I can't help you until you point to it. Well, tell me what hurts. Mm-mm. That's what happens to us when we're in emotional pain, which we know now that emotional pain registers in the brain, the same exact part of the brain as physical pain. So if you pour scalding mm. coffee accidentally on your hand, the same part of the brain lights up as if you feel social rejection or disconnection. Like emotional pain is real. But imagine not being able to point to it or talk about it in a way where you can heal from it or someone can help you because you don't have the language. That's why emotional literacy, um, people like Mark Brackett's work at Yale um, is so important because we've got to learn the language. So if you become familiar with the categories of emotion, with the identifications of various emotions, does that alone enable you to label your own emotion better? Yes. Yeah, 100%. Because you you can, you know, Mark Brackett has this, uh, he, he's an incredible, he's the director of the Emotion Studies I don't know if that's the formal name, but emotion studies at Yale. And he's been he's been fighting his entire career to get emotional literacy, social emotional literacy in to schools. And they see a huge difference in outcomes for students who have the gift of emotional granularity. Mm. And so emotional literacy is the foundation of resilience, empathy, I think connection. You know, so much of the work that I do and you do is about having the courage to make a bid for connection and having the courage Mm. to answer the bid. How did you come to this understanding of the need for connection? I think it was really social work. I mean, I think it was, you know, bachelor's, master's, PhD in social work and, you know, 
at the end of it, when I started thinking about my dissertation, I thought, what's the one thing I know for sure coming out of social work? And it's that we are hardwired for connection. And in the absence of it, there seems to always be suffering. So what is it? What, where, if, if it's so powerful that you're, you're, you're drawn to say we're hardwired for it, then why don't we just do it? Uh, why? I mean, we're hardwired to eat, too. We eat. And if we don't eat, there's a big problem. But why do we have this counterforce pulling us away from connection? What, what's all that about? Shame. Shame. Yes, I think. So tell me more about shame. What do you mean by shame? So shame is, I define shame as the intensely painful belief or experience that we are flawed and unworthy of love, belonging, and connection. And the best way to explain shame is to explain kind of what it's not. So the thing that we confuse with shame often is guilt. So shame is the feeling I am bad. Guilt is the feeling I did something bad. So if you hand back grades and I get a 55 out of 100 on my test and we, we look at shame and guilt by self-talk. Like, how do I talk to myself? And my self-talk is, I'm such an idiot. I'm such a loser. I'm, so, I'm stupid. That's shame. If our response is, boy, that was a stupid thing not to study last night or I can't believe I didn't, you know, then the focus is not on self but behavior and that's guilt. So what we know from probably 50 years of research now, starting back with Helen Block Lewis, is that Shame is positively correlated with addiction, depression, violence, loneliness, suicide. Guilt tends to be inversely correlated with those outcomes, meaning the better that we can separate ourselves from behaviors and maintain a platform of self-worth from which to see problems like I got a 55, I'm a good person and I'm smart. That was a stupid decision not to study last night or to go out with my buddies and, you know, drink too many beers or whatever. Um, so shame is just this belief that we're not good enough. It's everything that backs up marketing and advertising today in the world, you know, mm. not pretty enough, not thin enough, not, you know, this enough, not young enough. Um, don't smell good yeah, enough. Yeah, don't smell good enough. Um, and so, you know, if we're hardwired for connection, which I believe we are from mirror neurons down, shame is the fear that I'm not worthy of connection. How do we experience this shame about connection? I, I'm trying to picture if I were going to examine my own life or examine the life of somebody else as a character I'm playing. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine what I would go through, what the steps are I would go through to say, I want to be connected to this person, but uh-oh, I'm ashamed of this, and okay. that's keeping me back. What, what, what would that be like? So let me give you some examples from, the, from, the, from my research. Shame is telling my parents I'm gay and them telling me to leave the house. Shame is my partner saying, 
I want a divorce. I do want children. I just don't want them with you. Mm. Shame is finding out that you didn't get the job because they thought you were too old. Shame is, I had this this man, I'll tell you a short story if I can, about I was interviewing this man who during the 2008 recession got laid off. And for six months, he woke up every morning and got dressed and left for work and went to a coffee house on the other side of town because he was so ashamed to tell his wife. He never told his no, wife. No, he told his friends. He told his brother. Oh, wow. But he was ashamed to tell his wife. And so I think... Wait, does that, how does that affect connection? Well, I mean, how can you be connected? Like you're, you know, like you're afraid. You're, I'm like, shame is the fear of if you see me and you know who I am, you know what I've been through, I won't be lovable to you. Yeah, I got it. I, I see now. I see now what you mean. The fear of being unlovable is a really. What parts of ourselves do we orphan to ensure our lovability? But then that's a Faustian bargain, right? Yeah. This this draws dangerously close to self love, which is a concept I find hard to understand. Maybe you can explain it to me. Uh, how do you love yourself? I mean, what do you say? Gee, my heart beats faster when you're near. <laughs> I'm always, <laughs> I'm always here. Or I miss you. Where are you? I'm over here. Or I always listen to what you say. You're very wise. Well, it's you saying it. I know. What? What it? What is it? What? What do you mean by? What does anybody mean by self love? I think it's a hard. I mean, I have a reaction to it because I'm not a touchy feely person, and so I have like kind of a. Oh, gross me out kind of reaction. Like, but I know it's really important. So maybe, maybe another way I would say it is one of the quotes that I say in the Gifts of Imperfection that's probably uh, a very quoted piece of that work is owning our stories the good, the bad, the ugly, the hard, the beautiful, the profane, owning all of our stories of who we are. And loving ourselves through the process of owning all those stories is the bravest thing we'll ever do. And that's probably as close as I can get to explaining what it means to me, which means not trying to cut off or give away or pretend like the parts of me that are not great don't exist to say, this is all of me. And, you know, and I, I'm, I'm, kind of shitty if I don't get nine hours of sleep and I have some anxiety sometimes and um, I'm very germ phobic. So I've been super anxious during COVID and um, I can get, when I get scared, I can get scary with people I love. Like all those parts, those are all parts of me. And that's all true, by the way. I'm not making, that's not fiction. Um, (laughs) But all of those parts of me have to be integrated. I mean, I guess a Jungian, a Jungian term, a Jungian way to look at self-love would be integration. Like, I know all of me. Right. And I still see the worth in me. Okay, that I get. Yeah. That I get. Talking with you only raises 50 more <laughs> questions in my mind. But we, we're running out of time. 
Before we end, though, we always end on seven quick questions. Do you mind going through that? I would love it. Seven, Seven quick questions with seven quick answers. What do you wish you really understood? Music. How to read music. Uh, how to read, yeah, me too. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? You have your facts wrong. <laughs> I forgot you're from Texas. Yeah. <laughs> Get your shit together. I don't know. Like. <laughs> <laughs> What number three? What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Um, what elf family I originate from? What what you what? What elfin family I'm a part of? What is my elfin history? I didn't think I heard right. Elfin e l f i n. Yes, whatever the word is for elf. Like if if I if I have an elf history. What the hell does that? I don't mean? know. I just said. What do you mean? They said, what is your elf genealogy? And I said, I, I don't. Un, unknown. Unclear. Unknown. <laughs> That's the best one I ever heard. <laughs> I just didn't. I, and it was, at, it was at a large audience. So I just, and I didn't want to make her feel bad. I just said, I, I haven't done the genealogy work on it yet. I don't know. <laughs> but I'm sure there's a website where you can. I'm sure. How do you stop a compulsive talker? I don't know. Um... This is so interesting, but I've got to run. Oh. Sorry, I hate to interrupt. Okay. I, I don't know. I, I had a lot of modeling of that in social work school. So there's a lot of really appreciate all your sharing. I need to be mindful of time. Other people need to share. So I'm, I, I just do it. Okay, now you're at a dinner party. You're sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you start a real, a real conversation with that person? The chances of me being seated at a dinner party next to someone I don't know are very slim. Um, but if I were, I would say, how do you know our guest, our host? How do you know our host? Right. But I, 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 I would do a lot of introvert pre-planning before I went to a dinner party. <laughs> you look them up on the internet. Well, no, I would, I would ask the person, literally I do this all the time, and ask the person hosting who's going to be, who I'm going to be sitting next to. Uh. Is that because you're ashamed of something? No, it's because I have a lot of self-love for my introverted self. I don't, I don't, I don't do small talk very well. Now, that's, that's an interesting combination. That leads me to one more question about the substance of what we've been talking about. I would think small talk would come more easily the more free you are to say whatever comes into your head and make something out of nothing. No, I don't, I, I'm pretty, I'm not, I don't say whatever comes to my head. I'm pretty direct. Um, but because I have humor, I can, I can usually make it land okay. But um, I don't, I'm really bad at small talk. And to the point where if left, I'm, if left alone with some people I don't know in the midst of small talk, I it could ramp up into some anxiety where, mm. I'm definitely at a, a party or something that I have to go to, either talking to the children, talking to the people who are working the party, or like right next to my husband. It's so interesting because you have an improvisational tone when you give a talk. And I get the impression that although it seems prepared, you're, re- you're ready and able to veer off if necessary because a thought strikes you. Yes, I never use notes. And so I definitely yeah. go, I, I definitely, there, I know if I'm going to give a talk, 
I know the six or seven beats, but that's all I know. I know the six or seven beats, yeah. what I want to teach, what stories I want to use, but that's it. And I'm, I can go anywhere. I can do that in a social setting. It is, it's like walking through quicksand for me. It is a ton of work because it's at work, it's just work and I love my work. But in a social setting, it's very hard. I can get really awkward. Well, we'll have to cover that in our next session. <laughs> promises, promises. I will be here. <laughs> okay, last two yeah. questions. What gives you confidence? Data. Ah. Last question. What book changed your life? The Color Purple. Great. Brene, this has been so much fun. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed Me it. Me too. Thank you. Talk to you soon again. I, I hope. hope so. I'd love it. Bye-bye. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alder Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Brene Brown is a visiting professor at the University of Texas, Austin. She and her team have developed a program to improve leadership skills called Dare to Lead. She's the author of five best-selling books, the host of the podcast Unlocking Us, and she's given a TED Talk that's been viewed 48 million times and counting. You can find out all about her work at her extensive website, BreneBrown.com. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with the president of MIT, Raphael Reif, about what America needs to do to retain our leadership in science and technology. Now, when that leadership for the first time in almost a century is under serious challenge. I always thought uh, the U.S. is this place that can do the impossible. I mean, we all the gadgets, all the new things, all the excitement, all the quality of life improvements come from U.S. innovations. But now I see China doing the things they're doing and doing them so well. I think the U.S. got a competitor now and we just have to wake up and compete. Raphael Reif and what we need to do to meet the challenge from China's increasing technological sophistication. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. 
And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alden. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.